So good to see all of them this morning. I'm going to give you a little teaser. Often you give, you know, at the end of a TV show, they say coming next week. I'm going to tell you this one before we start out. Next week's sermon's title is Sloppy Kisses. Now I'm going to let y'all think about that all week. What on earth could a sermon be called Sloppy Kisses? But today we're in Nehemiah, looking at Nehemiah, we're in Nehemiah chapter 1. I didn't put the scripture on the screen because we're going to look at the whole chapter. So I hope you have your word of God with you. There's some in the pews in front of you and read along. It's not a long chapter. Let's read Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Your word has great wisdom for us, great knowledge, great history, but great wisdom and great truth as it teaches us about you and how to live for you better. We ask you to open our hearts and minds at this time that we may hear your voice. Lord, you speak to each one of us individually and uniquely. So let each one be attuned to you to hear your message for them today through these words that you've given me. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this book, Nehemiah. Uh, It is so fascinating to me. And I think it's important for us to understand the background of the book. 
it sets the, the scene, it sets the tone. One of the first things about the book is that the whole Old Testament, when you look at it and you start at Genesis and read through, it starts and it's going through chronologically, but it, the whole Old Testament is not chronological. It, uh, that overlaps. And I've got a, a, a diagram for you of the books of the Bible. We can throw that up there. So you can see when the different ones were written. Okay? That's the way chronologically the books of the Bible are laid out. And of course, Nehemiah comes before Psalms, and Psalms is there in the middle but it actually takes place up here along with Malachi, Zechariah, and, and Haggai at the very end of the Old Testament. It's one of the last writings of the Old Testament. So even though it's uh, right after uh, Chronicles and Ezra, it takes place at the very books at the very end of the Old Testament. You see, of course, we have the Pentateuch here, Genesis through Numbers, Leviticus, Joshua, Judges. Even 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, this part, uh, the history of it is actually the kings over here. Well, you see here in the middle, we have the 70 years exile. And between the years 606 B.C. and 586 B.C., the Israelites were gradually carried off into exile by the different kings. There were three deportations. And as Nehemiah says in his prayer, it's because they had not obeyed God, and God actually kept his promise. He said, if you do not follow me, if you do not obey me, I will scatter you to the winds, to the various places. And many of you have grown up hearing about the ten lost tribes of Israel. And they're not really lost. We know what happened. The Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, which was the ten tribes. And they had a plan. They would take peoples from conquered lands, bring them to another conquered land, and they'd take people from that so that they intermingled the peoples. And so the tribes were lost in the sense that they were assimilated into other cultures and lands, but they weren't lost in the sense that they just disappeared off the face of the earth. Judah, the southern kingdom, had some good kings that honored God, and God delayed their exile for some time. But even so, after about 20 years, they continued to disobey God and so they were the last part of the deportation about 586 B.C. And that started this 70-year exile that they were scattered all over. Well, Nehemiah was born about 466 B.C., so 120 years after the first Israelites were carried into the exile. What does that mean? That means he didn't grow up in the land of Judah. He didn't grow up in Jerusalem. He had never lived there. He grew up in, in uh, what is now modern-day Iran, uh, Mesopotamia. Uh, he was born there and raised there, and he became, uh, as he said at the end of the book, 
a cupbearer to the king. Sometimes, again, when we read the scripture and we don't, we personify it to today, we don't catch the distances. Well, I wanted to know that, so I looked up where Susa was. It's, of course, an ancient city. It's no longer uh, existing, although it's a new city there now. And it is in Iran. And then I looked up Jerusalem, and it's 950 miles between the two. If you want to put that into today's, that's as if it was Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas is about 950 miles from Louisville, Kentucky. And if you were to try to walk to, Louisville, uh, to Houston, Texas, it would take 306 hours, according to Google. And of course, the world lives by Google Maps. So 306 miles, and if you could do some simple math, if you could manage to walk 10 hours a day, it would take you a good month to get from here to Houston walking. And that's with our culture and our society. So you put it back in that time when Nehemiah and the people were traveling back and forth. It took a long time. It was a long ways, and it took a long time to go back and forth. Well, in this setting, his brother Hanani was still living in Jerusalem. Some of the uh, people in Israel were left there. He had come to Susa. He was visiting his brother. And his brother says, what's happening back in the old home place where grandmom and granddad would have lived, so to speak? And he says, it's not good, brother. The gates are down. The walls have been burned. And the people are struggling. And that worried Nehemiah, of course, because the walls of a city were about everything then. That's what kept marauders from coming in and attacking the city. That's where they gave protection. So they had no protection. And the people of the areas could come in and do what they wanted to with them. And so we have him that he's 950 miles away from his home place, so to speak, though he never lived there. That's where his lineage was out of. It took many, many days to get there. It wasn't a quick trip. And he's essentially a slave. He's a cupbearer to the king. Now that's a prestigious job, sort of, but he was expendable. His job was to bring the food to the king and to test it before the king partook of it. So if there was poison in that, he would die and the king would know not to eat the meat. So on one hand, it's a trusted position serving the king in that way. In another way, it wasn't so great because he was expendable as a slave and he could die. So this is the background. Nehemiah is in this place. He's never been to Jerusalem, but it's dear to his home. And if you could imagine a home place where your family came out of and you got the word, say it may have been Houston. And if you're living here and you're working and you hear that the town that your parents and grandparents had been reared in and lived had been decimated by a hurricane, which they get down in Houston, and your heart would be broken and even we can relate to Mayfield, Kentucky, even though it's three and a half, four hours away. Just the devastation there grieves us and burdens us. 
because there are connections to that. And that's where Nehemiah was, but he couldn't really do anything. He couldn't just go. He didn't have that freedom. He had a job. You, you relate to that. You can't just get up and go and leave your job. You have to make an income. And so Nehemiah is in this hopeless situation. He's grieving for a city. It says he fasted and prayed and wept over the state of Jerusalem. One of the reasons he asked this question is because there had been a gradual return of the people to Jerusalem. Babylonia, Nebuchadnezzar, is the one who had conquered this area. And the Babylonians fell to the Persians, and the Persians took over. And you'll remember the the story in the Bible, I'm sure, about the handwriting on the wall where the hand appeared. And it wrote, many, many tinkle ups are in. Your days have been measured and numbered. And soon after that, or that night, Babylonia was overtaken by the Persians. Well, the Persians, uh, King Cyrus was the first one. He started letting the people go back. And the first one to take people back was Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel took some of the people back to the land and started repopulating Jerusalem and Judah and Israel. Then after that, Ezra went back, and there's the book of Ezra, and it's, it's involved with the building of the temple. So that was the first order of business. They got people there, and then they went back to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, which had been decimated by the, the invading armies. And so Nehemiah is actually, at this point, some of the people are back in the land. The temple has been started, but because it's hard work, they're poor, they don't have a lot, they don't have farms, they got to start all over. They got disenchanted, discouraged, and the work had kind of fallen by the wayside. And that's when Hanani, his brother, visits him, and he asks what's going on, and Hanani tells him and gives him this this grievous news that causes him to fall down and weep. It'd be easy for Nehemiah just to throw his hands up and say, well, there's nothing I can do. I don't have any wealth. I, I can't travel there. I can't do anything. It's easy for him to say, well, it's not my problem. I've got a home here. We don't know. He may have had family. He was probably established. He was a young man, I guess. But he didn't. It grieved him. It broke his heart and he fell down. And his reaction was to turn to his God. And he does that in this very specific way with this prayer. And this prayer gives us kind of a threefold uh, look at how to pray to God, an example. And Nehemiah starts out with adoration. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, So he acknowledges that it is God who is the powerful one. God is the creator. And and in doing that, when we do that, we establish the proper relationship between us and God because, quite frankly, it's easy with our ego to kind of put ourselves ahead of God, to put ourselves more important than God. I'll give you a a challenge. When you think about the Bible, and I often like to ask this, what was the very first sin in the Bible? Well, of course, you'll think of Adam and Eve eating the fruit. 
and that's the first, uh, first one of humans there. But I contend that the very first sin was when Satan, as one of the angels, said, I will rise above God. I will make myself greater than God. And God cast him out of heaven. And it says Satan swept a third of the stars or a third of the angels along with him. Well, that sin that Abraham, uh, Satan, I don't know where Abraham came from, that uh, sin that Satan created was pride. He had great pride that he was going to be and more, and he thought in his heart, greater than, than God. Pride is the, really the sin of Adam and Eve because when Satan tempted them, they had to go through their mind, well, maybe God doesn't really know what he's talking about and, and I can make a decision for myself. And so they put their desires, their wishes ahead of what God had said to do. And really on and on when you study the sins of the Bible, it really boils down to pride being such a great sin because pride is thinking, I know better than you do, God. And we can struggle with that today as we have challenges and we don't want to follow the way that God said or we don't want to wait upon God. We want to take it in our own hands. We want to solve it ourselves. We're exhibiting pride to do that rather than trusting God. And there's a there's a balance here. I understand about being uh, self-sufficient, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Yes, we do what we can do. And you don't, if you have if you have bills and you're not paying, you don't have the income in, you don't just sit on your haunches at home praying to God to get out. You try to find a job. You try to control your finances. You do what you can do. But when you come to that point, you say, God, I'm trusting you. Well, Nehemiah is at that point. He has no resources. He's at a point he literally can do nothing. He has no position. He has no wealth. He has no uh, time to go back. He can't just say, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and start building the wall. So he turns to his God and he starts by establishing this relationship. You are God in heaven. I am your subject. And you love those. He, he honors God. You love Him and obey His commands. And then He asks, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant who is praying day and night. That is a prayer of invocation. When we start a worship service, we often have an opening prayer. And, and if you want to get uh, rule-bound and stuff, that should be a prayer of invocation where we're asking God to join with us as we worship, to open our hearts and minds. We're trying to invoke the presence of God, to invoke the, the work of God in our lives as we seek to worship Him. And that's a proper prayer. It can, it can sound like we're, we're trying to control God. That's not it at all. God wants to commune with us. God wants to teach us. God has sent the Holy Spirit to, to teach us truth and wisdom and knowledge. And so as we pray a prayer of invocation, of hear our prayers, open our eyes and, and that we may see, we're praying in God's 
desire we're praying in Jesus name is what that boils down to and so that's what he's doing here in verses 5 and 6 he's he's doing this honoring God setting the establishment up about who is right we have a more recent example in Jesus and what we call the Lord's Prayer how does God start that our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the same thing. It's setting up that God is the one to be worshipped. He is the supreme. And our desire, our heart should be that He is preeminent and that His kingdom comes to earth. So Jesus is following that same pattern here. Then Nehemiah moves into confession. He uses that exact word. I confess the sins we Israelites. And he remembers that he has fingers pointing back at him, including me and my father's house. So he's, he's confessing before God that there has been disobedience. There has been not following what God said, even though God over and over and over again called them to this life of repentance and trusting him. Verse 7, we have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. So Nehemiah starts out with adoration, establishing the right relationship between God and himself. Then he acknowledges that sin has occurred in his own life, in his family, and in the people of Israel. And that is uh, the... The uh, confession means to agree with. The sin has occurred. When we have a sin in our life, it's occurred. What we're doing when we confess is agreeing with God, yes, I did that. Yes, I'm guilty of that transgression. And so that's what Nehemiah is doing here. Then, after he has established the right relationship, after he has asked for God's forgiveness, then he makes his request or supplication. Verse 8, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even your exiled people I will gather from there. Nehemiah is quoting back to God what God has said. He is, uh, he is restating God's promise, and as if he needed to, he's reminding God of his promise. And it's not that he's trying to tell God something God doesn't remember. He's not trying to tell God what to do. He's acknowledging God's goodness and promise that God said, if my people will turn back to me, I will bring them back to the land of Israel. And that's what... Nehemiah was wanting. And so he actually reminds God or says back to God, indicating he knew the scriptures and, and, and joining God, entreating God to complete his promise, to fulfill his promise as he confesses their sins, as he acknowledges the whole reason they're in exile is because they had disobeyed God and God says, when you realize that and you turn from that, then I will return you to your land. 
and we have the verse really very, uh, very um, contemporary to this time of Second Chronicles seven fourteen. We quote often, "If my people, which are called by my name, will what humble themselves." That means admitting shortcomings, turn from their wicked ways. That's repentance. It's not just being sorry you're called. It's not being sorry for the consequences. It's acknowledging that you've wronged God, you're not obeying, and you turn from that and you go the other way. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, then, anybody, any good programmers used to if-then statements, then... God says, I will hear from heaven and, and, and remember their sins no more. And so there is this act, and that's what Nehemiah is doing here. And so he's saying, these are your servants. These are your people that you redeemed out of your strength and mighty hand. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. Of course, Jesus hadn't redeemed them yet. Jesus hadn't come and died so he he's he's dipping into God's love for his people, God's investment in his people these These are the people you've chosen lord and you've you've called them out of the land of Egypt. you've made these promises, so Lord, let your ear be attentive to this prayer and to the prayer of your other servants, the ones you could inject who delight in revering your name, being reverence, worshiping, and then give this servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And I think it's interesting there that he, he referred to the king as this man. He would never say that before the king, but it is acknowledging that the king is just a man. So Nehemiah is at this impossible situation for him humanly. He has no, no way to do anything about Jerusalem. And so he turns to his heavenly Father. He starts out acknowledging him as God. Then he continues with confessing sin, getting clean and pure before God. The psalmist said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear my prayers. When we have that in our life, it creates a, a wall, a barrier between us and God that, that hinders fellowship and hinders our relationship. So when we confess to God, when we cleanse ourselves, when we become repentant, it opens up that conduit, that passageway again for free flowing of God working in our lives, and then we can make our request our supplication we all have these situations like nehemiah in our lives we have some yes we can handle we can use the strength the knowledge the gifts that god's given us we can use the income he's blessed us with and we can handle day-to-day -day problems but there are some we're powerless we don't have the wisdom or the knowledge. We don't have the strength. We don't have the wherewithal in some fashion. And we can, uh, I think of, we can fall down into a fetal position, just wrap ourselves up and just kind of wither away. Or 
we can request our Heavenly Father in faith, reminding Him. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that more abundant. And we can remind Him, you want that for us, Father. And so as I turn back to you, I ask those blessings upon. Jesus over and over again talked about these things. I'm sending a the Holy Spirit, the Comforter to you. He will show you great things that you do not know when you're needing wisdom. So as we go through these steps, as we let go of our pride of thinking we know how to do things better, of thinking we have the best choices, of thinking we can handle everything better than God, as we let go of that and confess ourselves and, re- and repent and turn to Him and put Him back on the throne and we're His subject, then God is free to start moving in our lives again and He's willing. And it's, it's really not a hard thing to understand. If I'm an employer, I want to reward my employees who do as I ask them to do at work. If I'm a parent, I want to reward, I want to do good things for my children when they do what they need to do, the proper things in which I'm leading them. I don't want to, or we we shouldn't want to, reward bad behavior, bad actions. That, That fosters the wrong thing. And so this is where God is. God wants to reward us. He wants to bless us. He wants to solve these things. And as He does, we start able to trust more and more because we, I had this problem. God saw me through it. Next problem comes up. Hey, I know God can handle it. And I'm really excited. Uh, uh, not to tip too much, but in within a month, we're going to have a testimony from someone that God really worked in their lives to, uh, to just do a powerful thing. And they want to share that with you. That is a testimony and it is a strength to know these things and as we grow in that we are able to uh, God is able to do more and more through us so we as a church as we're coming out of COVID as we're coming out of other struggles and we don't know what to do we don't know how to reach our community we start out in the same way as Nehemiah Let's first put God in the right place. He is God. He is the one we follow. He is the one we obey. He is the one we listen to. He is the one who guides us. We acknowledge that too often we've chosen our own way, our own pleasure, our own pathway. And then, God, this is your church. You planted this church here over 200 years ago to be a beacon to this community, to tell this community about Jesus Christ. That's what you want to do, Lord, and we are your servants. We are your subjects, yielding ourselves to you, confessing to you. Now show us, Lord, how to step out. Empower us, Lord, to do that which we cannot do within our own strength. Give us wisdom, Lord, to know what to do when we don't know the answers. And like Nehemiah, we can have that prayer for success. And we can have faith in God. And the last thing it does is as we trust Him, as we lay the burden back in His lap, it glorifies Him. 
and later we can testify as this testimony is going to do. See what great thing God has done. And it's a growing, growing testimony. So we can learn a lot from Nehemiah. And we'll probably be back in the book a little more next week. We're going to talk about sloppy kisses. But right now we're talking about faith in God. That's what pleases God. For without faith it is impossible to please God. For anybody that comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So as we seek Him, we have the promise of God that He will reward us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Stand with me, please. Our precious Heavenly Father, I thank You for this testimony of Nehemiah. I thank You for this lesson in this very first chapter when he was encountered with an impossible situation that he didn't give up, that he didn't just shrivel and shrink into a corner. He took that grief and gave it back to you. He took that burden and laid it on you. And he trusted in you to do that which he could not do. Father, in each of the situations in our day-to-day lives, in each of our corporate situations, our work situations, may we learn more and more to step out in faith, trusting you to provide the answers, provide the means, provide the way, And may we be your willing servants, ready to obey and do as you lead. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, he he left heaven to come down to do your bidding because the only way we could have salvation is by a perfect man, a God-man, to take our sins upon himself, to carry them to the grave, to pay the price for our iniquity so that we could have forgiveness of sin and be with you one day when you call us home to heaven. Thank you that he was obedient to the cross, Lord, else we would truly have no hope. Father, may your word sink into us very deeply today, challenging each one of us to renew that life for you, to put you first place in our life to confess those areas that we are falling short and to ask you to open our eyes to our hearts to the riches of your knowledge, your wisdom, and and your glory. Father, I ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.